Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 3. Good morning to you again. 2 Samuel chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning, all 39 verses. Just to give you a little setting for the scene, here as we come to 2 Samuel 3, David has been anointed the king over Judah. And our passage today begins the account of how David comes to reign over all of Israel. 3, 4, 5, and on into 6. This is the story of how David comes to reign over all of Israel. Both the tribe of Judah in the south and then the ten tribes in the north. But as we're going to see over the next few chapters, David's rise to be king over all Israel is anything but a smooth ascent. And that begins today in 2 Samuel chapter 3. So you can follow along with me as we read. This is what the Holy Spirit of God says to His church beginning in verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His first was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel. His second, Chiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And the third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, the king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hagit. And the fifth, Hold on a second. Shephathiah. I forgot the names. The son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithriam of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ai. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth, and he said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman? God, do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me. And behold, my hand shall, bring, shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, Good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then Michael sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband Paltiel, the son of Laish. And her husband went after her, weeping all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as your king over you. Now then, bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin 
And then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. When Abner came with twenty men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner the son of Ner came to see the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you? Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. When Joab came out of David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate so as to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by a sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the beer. They buried Abner at Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God do so to me, and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put Abner the son of Ner to death. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince... And a great man has fallen this day in Israel. And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the son of Zariah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and seek the Lord's blessing on the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, we do ask for Your grace now that we might understand the Scriptures as they've been inspired by the Holy Spirit and handed down to us, Father. We pray that we would hear with ears of faith and that You would keep us from error. I pray specifically, God, that the words spoken now would be faithful to Your Word and that You would grant Your people discernment that they might believe the truth and thus be built up and encouraged and strengthened in the faith. We pray this, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I once watched a documentary where the director had all the people he disagreed with appear only in black and white, while all of his allies were filmed in bright, vivid color. For every scene throughout the entire film, this stark dichotomy was used. Black and white for the bad guys, vivid color for the so-called good guys. Now, at first you might think this sounds like a good idea. At least the producer made his point, and he did so quite clearly. There was no mistaking what his opinion was. But as a matter of fact, the effect was probably the opposite of what the director intended. The documentary seemed artificial, and therefore disconnected from the reality of this world. And as a result, instead of making the director's point, his presentation, his his stark dichotomy, actually obscured his point. To put it very simply, the film was just too neat to be trustworthy. It was too neat to be realistic. Thankfully, friends, our passage this morning does not share that director's mistake. 2 Samuel 3 does not have a neat breakdown of the black and white bad guys versus the vivid color good guys. Instead, what we find here is David's kingdom in all of its real-world messiness. It's a complicated chapter, isn't it? It's hard to discern what's wise and what's foolish. It seems that politics are at play just as much as theology. Far from being neat and tidy, this passage is messy. It is complicated. It is hard. And therefore, it's realistic. It's realistic. You see, unlike that poorly done documentary, our passage resonates with the reality of the world as we encounter it. I mean, think about it, friends. What kind of world do we live in? Not a black and white world where everything is easy to discern what's right and what's wrong. We live in a messy world. A world that requires discernment. A world where things are often mingled and mixed Together. And what do we see in our own lives? Wisdom mixed with foolishness. Kindness mingled with harshness. Faith still wrestling with unbelief. So the fact that 2 Samuel 3 is just downright messy simply means that it very well has something to say to us and to our convoluted lives in this still messy, complicated world. And indeed, that is what we find in this chapter of God's Word. As we watch David's kingdom advancing through the muck and the mire of this world, we're reminded that God's promises do not depend upon a perfect environment. We're reminded that God works in the reality of life, not in the hypothetical of how things ought to be, in our opinion. The Lord's promises don't rest on a perfect environment. They rest on a faithful God who meets His people in the messiness of the world in order to faithfully bring them into His perfect kingdom. So I won't, I, won't try to, I won't try to paper over anything this morning. This chapter is really hard. And there are complicated things in it. And I won't be able to explain everything to you with crystal clarity. But, I do hope and pray that in the midst of the messiness of 2 Samuel 3, that we will be able to see the hand of the Lord advancing His purposes even in the midst of a messy and complicated world. As we look now to the details of the chapter, I'd like to draw your attention to three snapshots 
of David's real world kingdom. Three snapshots of David's real world kingdom. Each snapshot says something about God's work on David's behalf. But each one also acknowledges that God's work happens in the real world. The first comes in verses 1-5 to where we see strength mingled with compromise. Strength mingled with compromise. Verse 1 provides a fitting summary for not only this chapter, but also the several chapters that are to come. Notice again what the text says, particularly the last line. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. Friends, that is that's about as straightforward as our passage is going to get. There's a conflict between Israel's royal houses, but that conflict is clearly headed towards a victory for David. In fact, David is getting stronger day after day. He survived Saul's murderous rampage, and now David has been anointed over the tribe of Judah as their king. David is clearly on the rise. The house of David is clearly growing stronger. What about the house of Saul? Well, it's headed by Ishbosheth, a feeble, weak man who can't even control his own kingdom. David is rising, Saul's house is falling. The passage, however, doesn't stop with that summary. The text then gives us physical proof of David's growing strength. Notice verses 2 to 5, where we read about the sons born to David while at Hebron. Now, before we jump to the question I know you want to answer, we have to see these verses in their historical context first. In David's time, a king's strength was measured not only by his army, but also by his sons. Remember that kingship passed from father to son. So if a king had many sons, then he had a stable house. He had a stable kingship. The king's dynasty was well established. And that's the case here with David. His six sons represent security for his kingship. How many sons does Saul have left? One. And he's a weakling. David has six sons. His house is growing. And in the historical context of the chapter, it's an indication of David's strength. He's much stronger than Saul. But then comes that messiness we spoke about at the outset. Look again at verses 2-5 through and notice what else David has with his six sons. He has six wives. It might have given us pause back in 1 Samuel when David acquired a second wife and then a third, but now the total number is six, and there's more to come. Why would David do this? Why would he build his house on such a questionable foundation? Well, friends, the answer, as much as it might unsettle us, is rather clear. Compromise. Compromise. David has six wives because on some level, he has compromised with the world. God's Word was very clear on this issue. From the beginning, God established marriage as the union of one man and one woman for one entire lifetime. And what's more, Deuteronomy 17 explicitly prohibited Israel's kings from taking many wives. Don't get a lot of gold. Don't get a lot of horses from Egypt. And don't take for yourself many wives. It's not hard to exegete. You don't have to know Hebrew. It's really clear. 
So there's no ambiguity on David's standard. But according to the world standard, this is what a king was expected to do. He was expected to build alliances through marriage. And that's what David has done. Notice David's third son, Absalom. Who's his mother? Verse 3, Makah, the daughter of Talmai, the king of Gesher. You see, it's convenient. At least on this point, David is following the wisdom of this world. Does that make David a failure and invalidate everything about his kingdom? No. But it does mean that compromise is mingled in with his strength. At this point, some people would say that I'm reading verses 2 through 5 too negatively. Some people might even point out that the text renders no verdict on what David has done. There's not, a, there's not a parenthetical statement that says, by the way, this was wrong. So some people might say, I'm reading this too negatively. But actually, the history of David's family provides all the verdict that we need. Look again through the list, friends. And if you know David's history, then you'll quickly recognize the verdict, and it's not good. There's Amnon, who violated his half-sister Tamar. There's Absalom, who killed Amnon and then rebelled against his father. There's Adonijah, who opposed his brother Solomon and even tried to take the kingdom from him. Friends, that's a history of heartache. And where does it begin? With David's compromise. You see, we have to read verses 2 through 5 and all their real world messiness. Yes, David's house is growing strong, but that growing strength is clearly mingled with compromise. Friends, what we should take away from this is that salvation is ultimately a work that only God can accomplish. David is a better king than Saul. I want to be crystal clear on that. David's a better king than Saul. But David himself needs redemption. For all of his strength, David cannot deliver one single person from their greatest enemy, the enemy of sin. How do we know that David cannot do this? Because David is a sinner like you and me. His life bears the marks of compromise just like ours. So David's the king. He's even a strong king, but he's not the Messiah. Salvation is a work that requires more than exceptional human strength. Salvation is a work that requires more than a strong human foundation. Salvation requires divine intervention. Every human deliverer will fail you. Every human institution will fail to deliver you. I don't care if it's Israel's kingdom or our country. Every human institution will fall short of delivering you. If God's people are going to be saved in the ultimate sense, then God Himself has to do it. No one else can do it. Not even David. David's strength is mingled with compromise. And therefore, when you read these verses, your heart should be crying out, God, give us someone better. Give us someone better. As the chapter continues, so does the picture of David's real world kingdom. In verses 6-21, to we see the second snapshot. And it's this, fulfillment mixed with intrigue. There's fulfillment, but it's mixed with intrigue. For this point, it helps to start at the end of the scene 
and then work backwards. So look down at verse 21. Notice what's coming to pass in verse 21. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my Lord the King, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. Friends, the key phrase there is all Israel. David's kingdom is expanding just as God promised that it would. You see, God's Word is moving ahead. The Lord's promise is being fulfilled. And all Israel, all the tribes, will now come together under the Lord's anointed. That's the end. So keep that in mind. Now, let's back up to verse 6 and watch how this fulfillment comes about. And to put it very simply, friends, it comes about through intrigue. You'll notice that Abner shows up again in verse 6. And while Saul's house is getting weaker... Abner is getting stronger. This shouldn't surprise us. We saw it in the previous chapter and it remains true here. Abner is out for himself. In fact, I take verse 6 to be the guideline for everything Abner does. Everything. His aim is always to make himself strong. But in verse 7, something happens that Abner does not expect. Ishbosheth, the puppet king, confronts the power-hungry Abner. You see it in verse 7. I want to be delicate here, so perhaps just some general background will be sufficient. Ancient kings had harems that symbolized the king's power. Kids, if you don't know what a harem is, ask your dad when you go home. Don't ask me. Ancient kings had harems that symbolized the king's power. And after the king died... If you took one of the concubines from his harem, it meant that you were staking your claim to the throne. It was your way of saying, hey, I'm the king now. That's what Ishbosheth accuses Abner of doing in verse 7. He essentially accuses Abner of treason. That's what verse 7 is. You're committing treason. Now, the text never tells us whether or not the accusation is true, but it rings true especially in light of verse 6. In fact, Abner's response points in that direction as well. Notice verses 8 to 10. In anger, Abner swears by God that he will bring all Israel under David's rule. What's more, David even acknowledges that he will do this in accordance with the Lord's promise to David. You see it there in verse 9? He swears in accordance with the Lord's promise. So Abner knows God has promised the kingdom to David, and in his anger, he swears that he will now help God's promise come to pass. But don't miss what this means, friends. It means that Abner has knowingly been opposed to God from the very beginning. Remember, it was Abner who set up Ishbosheth's kingdom in the first place, this was his idea. So he did that knowing full well that God promised the kingdom to David. So as Abner heads out to help David, we should not see him acting from a heart of faith. You can do the right thing without faith. It's meaningless. Again, remember verse 6. Abner is self-seeking. If Ishbosheth won't give Abner what he wants, then Abner just changes the arena and tries to play the same game with David. It's not a heart of faith. It's self-seeking. And in verse 12, that's exactly what Abner attempts to do. Notice his braggadocious 
statement here. And Abner sent messages to David on his behalf. To whom does the land belong? The implied answer is me. It belongs to me. Therefore make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall bring you over, shall bring over all Israel to you. Abner claims that the land belongs to him. So if David will just agree to a deal, then Abner will deliver all Israel into David's hand. And perhaps surprisingly, David agrees. But with one condition. Abner has to return David's wife, Michael, whom Saul had given away to another man. And then to reinforce that request, David sends messengers to the puppet king, to Ishbosheth, expressing the same demand. David paid the bridal price for Michael, and therefore he wants his wife back. Now, why is David doing this? Why does he make this request? Well, to put it plainly, he's beating Abner at his own game. He's beating Abner at his own game. Remember, Michael is Saul's daughter. So by bringing her back to his house, David is symbolically uniting the two kingdoms without Abner's help. And what's more, David runs the request through whom? Through Ishbosheth, the puppet king, which makes Abner nothing more than a middleman. So Abner has made his, pl- his power play, and David has made one better. It's as if David says to Abner, I'll take the kingdom from you, but let's be clear, you don't control me. Before we go on, we have to say something about verses 15 and 16. They jump off the page when you read. Michael is taken away from Paltiel, who follows after her crying until he's sent back home. It's a really sad and pathetic moment, isn't it? Who's to blame for such a sad moment? Saul. Saul's to blame. Remember, friends, it was Saul's idea to use Michael as a pawn to try to get David killed. Remember, the text said that Michael loved David, and so Saul was like, ah, I'll tell David he can have Michael if he kills a hundred Philistines, and surely the Philistines will kill him. So it was Saul's idea to turn Michael into a pawn in the first place. And then when that didn't work, when David brought him 200 dead Philistines, Saul just gave her away to another man. This is Saul's doing. And it's another bitter fruit of Saul's sinful decisions. I told you the chapter was messy. I told you it was the real world. So it's heartbreaking to see Paltiel weep. But it's even more heartbreaking to realize this is what sin does. This is what sin does. It wrecks people's lives, both individually and in families. And so you think back to that first point where we talked about the compromise, and then verses 15 and 16 should be a sobering warning. Don't don't pursue any compromise because sin wrecks people's lives. Now, back back to the narrative. Having agreed upon the terms... Abner heads out to meet David. Verses 17-22 to tell the story. Abner confers with the elders of Israel along the way, and then he meets David in Hebron. The men feast, and then David sends Abner away in peace. There's a lot of detail, but the upshot is this. The kingdom is soon going to be united under David. And God's promise will move one step closer to its fulfillment. Remember, I said you've got to keep the end in view. Now, has the process of fulfillment been neat and tidy? 
No. It's rather messy. But, and this is important, it hasn't been necessarily unrighteous or wicked. I want to be, I want to be clear on this point, friends. Abner is certainly scheming to hand the kingdom over. But notice, there's no plot to kill Ishbosheth. He doesn't come to David and say, hey, I'll tell you what, I'll kill him and then you get the throne. There's no plot to shed blood, which David would not have agreed to. Furthermore, for all of his boasting, Abner does consult with whom? With the elders of Israel. So, this isn't a hostile takeover either. It's not a violent coup. Is it full of intrigue? Is it messy? Is it complicated? Yes. But it's not blatantly unrighteous or wicked. It's just intriguing. And that in turn brings the pressing question home to us. It's the question that I spent half the week thinking about. What are we supposed to take away from this scene that is so full of intrigue? What are we supposed to take away from this scene that's so complicated? Well, there's both encouragement and conviction at work here. The encouragement is this. Just very simply, God's purposes truly are unstoppable. God's purposes truly are unstoppable. Don't let all the intrigue obscure the main idea, friends. The Lord is fulfilling His Word and nothing will stand in His way. Not even messy people. God is advancing His will and no amount of selfish scheming can derail what God has promised. Does that mean we can live however we'd like and just let God take care of the rest? No, not in the least. But it should encourage us that even when the world schemes, God's will is greater. You see, brothers and sisters, this is the reality of God's sovereign providence. He often uses the world's schemes to accomplish precisely what He wants. That's what He's doing here. Abner thought he was making himself strong when in fact he was serving the Lord's anointed every step of the way. God's will is truly unstoppable. So the next time it seems to you that the world's schemes are winning and gaining the upper hand, remember David's messy rise to power. Remember how God took all of this intrigue and He used it to fulfill His Word. And let that encourage you to walk by faith in His Word regardless of what this world attempts. So that's the encouragement. God's purposes truly are unstoppable. And if it bothers us that God would use something so intriguing and messy to do His will, then I would remind you of the cross where God did essentially the same thing. Where He used the wickedness of this age to accomplish precisely what He wanted. This is how God works, friends. He takes the world's attempts to subvert Him and He turns them back on their head. God's purposes truly are unstoppable. That's the encouragement. There's also conviction here. And the conviction is this. There's a great difference between seeking God's kingdom for convenience and seeking God's kingdom out of allegiance. Let me say that again. There's a great difference in seeking God's kingdom for convenience and seeking God's kingdom out of allegiance. Think about it for a moment. Abner seeks the kingdom, does he not? Yeah, he does. He supports God's anointed king. Abner even goes so far as to proclaim the Lord's promise. 
But Abner does all of that out of convenience, not allegiance. Contrast this with David, uh, with Jonathan, David's faithful friend. Jonathan supported David even when it cost Jonathan dearly. Abner supports David because he wants something in return. You see the difference? One response honors the king while the other tries to use him. One response enters the kingdom while the other misses it entirely. Friends, one of the great tragedies of our day is how many people, even in the church, have an Abner-like view of following Christ. How many there are today who are willing to profess Jesus as long as He gives them what they want in return. How many there are who have made Jesus a means to an end. That's not discipleship, friends. And the person who follows Jesus out of self-interest is not following Him at all. So let this be a reminder to us. True discipleship is always rooted in allegiance to Christ that denies self and seeks His glory over our own. There can only be one King in God's kingdom. And until we acknowledge that that King is not us, we have not entered the kingdom by faith. So ask yourself this morning, what lies at the heart of my discipleship? Is it allegiance to Christ by faith that seeks His glory over my own? Or is it just Abner-like convenience that is interested in Jesus so that He can give me what I want? Those are hard questions, but this is a hard chapter. They're hard questions, but that's part of what God intends to do here. It's exposing the hearts of His people through the intrigue of this text. The fulfillment for David is mixed with intrigue and that should come, cause us to examine our hearts for the ways in which we struggle with mixed motives as well. We're all far more like Abner than we would be quick to admit. That's the second snapshot. The final scene of the chapter gives us the third snapshot of David's real world kingdom. In verses 22-39, to 39, we see unity marred by vengeance. Unity marred by vengeance. The action shifts in verse 22 as Abner leaves and Joab returns. You'll remember there's bad blood between these two men. Abner killed Joab's brother. And now Joab would like nothing more than to settle the score. So it's not surprising in verse 24 that Joab would be furious with David for letting Abner go. In Joab's mind, this is just another plot. And David should never have agreed to meet with such a man. But then notice the irony of verse 27. After accusing Abner of deception, it's Joab who engages in deception. It's Joab who pulls out the treachery. He calls Abner back. And then when Abner least expects it, Joab stabs him to death. Understand, friends, this is an unjust death. Abner's not a good dude, but this is an unjust death. God's Word is very clear on this point. Vengeance belongs to God. What's more, Joab has no claim on Abner's life. Remember, Abner killed Joab's brother in battle and only after having warned the young man to turn back. So as tragic as that was, Joab has no right to claim Abner's life. He has no, he has no claim on Abner. He's committed a great injustice. 
But Joab has done something else as well. He has endangered David's rise to the throne. Consider how this situation would look to an Israelite from the northern tribes. It looks like David is bloodthirsty. Joab is David's commander. Joab kills the power man in the north. It looks like David is bloodthirsty and willing to do whatever it takes to get the throne. You see, Joab has risked the entire kingdom to settle a score. A growing national unity has been marred now by vengeance. But in the Lord's mercy, David responds with wisdom. David takes what could be a dangerous situation and he leads in a way that saves the unity Joab has risked. Notice with me just briefly the wisdom David displays. First off, he declares his innocence with a divine oath. Look at verse 28. In the presence of God, David announces that he had nothing to do with this. And he's telling the truth. This was not David's strategy. The man who twice spared Saul's life would not make a play for the throne through bloodshed. This was entirely Joab's doing, which is why David calls for justice to come down entirely on Joab. David declares his innocence. Next, David proclaims a national day of mourning. Look at verse 31. David demands that all the people wear sackcloth and and come to this funeral. But notice who David puts in the front of the funeral procession. Joab. He puts Joab out front. You see, David goes out of his way to send the message, this is a terrible thing that has happened, and therefore we should mourn. David's message becomes even clearer in verse 32, where he expresses genuine grief. Notice the emotion in the text. David wails and weeps. And then in verse 33, he writes a song of lament. Wailing, weeping, lamenting. In other words, friends, David is not faking this. He is genuinely grieved over what has happened. Now, you might ask how or why David is grieved considering what we know of Abner. Abner is not a commendable figure. So you might ask how or why is David grieved over this man's death? But what does God tell us in Ezekiel 33? That the Lord takes no pleasure, not even in the death of the wicked. Then why should we be surprised if the Lord's anointed displays the Lord's character? We shouldn't be surprised. Death in all of its situations is a horrible reality. It causes the Lord to grieve. And here we see the Lord's anointed King, David, expressing that same kind of grief as a display of God's own character. All of this then comes to a head in verses 36 and 37. This is the crescendo of the chapter. This is what everything has been building towards. Where we see the fruit of David's wisdom. Notice again what it says, verse 36. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. Friends, it's a complicated chapter, but these verses, quite frankly, are are beautiful. Here we see the Lord's anointed king display the kind of wisdom that produces unity among God's people. By God's grace, David takes what should have been a dangerous situation and he uses it to bring the people together. 
As the chapter closes, we get a final glimpse of the kind of king David will be. Notice David's closing words. Verse 39. I was gentle today. I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zariah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. What an incredible confession that is. Ask yourself, friends, does David have the authority to be severe? Yeah, he does. On an earthly level, David has the authority to be severe. Can David rule with an iron fist? Yes, if he wanted to. He's the king. So he has the earthly authority to rule as he wishes. But that's not how David rules. You see, even with his flaws, David understands he is also a man under authority. He's under God's authority. David may be the king, but he is not the Lord. That's why David leaves things in the Lord's hands. Because David believes the Scriptures that declare, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is the kind of king God's people need. A king who is himself submitted to divine authority. A king who leads God's people where they cannot lead themselves into heartfelt obedience to God. David pictures that kind of submission here in verse 39. He pictures that kind of leadership. But as we've seen even today, David is not perfect. And as we'll see again and again, there will be times when David falls short of being the kind of king God's people need. But mercifully, the day would come when another king would arise. This king would be the son of David, but he would also be greater than David. His life would have no marks of compromise. His hands would never know intrigue. And though this king would possess the authority of God Himself, he would not use that authority to take vengeance. Instead, this king, while hanging on a Roman cross, would pray with gentleness, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The Lord Jesus Christ is that King, brothers and sisters. And the incredible good news of the Bible is that Jesus came into this world, this broken, messy world that's complicated, that's full of sinners like you and me. He came into this world to establish God's kingdom for the salvation of God's people. So is 2 Samuel 3 messy? Yes, absolutely. And we should praise God it's messy. For it reminds us that our King did not wait for us to rescue ourselves. Instead, our King, the Lord Jesus, laid aside His glory. And where did He come? Into this world. Into the muck and mire of this world. Into the muck and mire of my life. To bring me and to bring sinners like you safely into God's perfect kingdom. It's messy, but praise God. So may your hearts be strengthened in Christ, brothers and sisters. I have nothing to give you except Christ. I can't answer all the questions. I have nothing to give you except Christ. May your hearts be strengthened in Christ. And may His Gospel give you great hope in the salvation of God that can never be derailed. Amen. Let's pray.